Take your Bible, please, and uh, turn with us to Revelation chapter 21. Obviously, this morning, we're going to try something a little bit different, <laughs> something that's new to us and relatively new to the church. Um, if you've been with us for the last few years, you know that uh, already Andre and I have been tag-teaming the annual Advent series, and this year we wanted to take that one step further by tag-teaming an actual message within the series. Uh, you may recall that one of the things that came out of our mission and vision meeting in the fall was that we really want to be intentional to continue to build a, a well-rounded teaching team, and we believe that this is just another step in that direction. So you'll just have to trust us and believe us when we tell you that that this is very good for our ongoing development, and, um, and we truly hope and pray that it is equally beneficial to you as well. Uh, anything you would want to add to that? I completely agree. It's been so good. So our Advent series this year, uh, you've been with us for the last few weeks, uh, it centers around the theme of light as it's traced throughout Scripture and helps tell the story of Christ's birth. Uh, what led to Christ's birth and then the implications of Christ's birth. Last week from John chapter 1, we learned that the Apostle John calls Jesus the true light. And Andre um, explained or talked about what this means. It means that Jesus is a divine light. He is an eternal light who is present at creation in whom all things were made. Jesus is a life-giving light, uh, one that breaks through and overcomes the darkness of sin and death. When Jesus was born, uh, this light from heaven broke into our world in surprising fashion. God became flesh and dwelt among us. So the Apostle John looked back at Jesus' entrance into the world and even back to the beginning of creation itself to declare that, that Jesus is from God and that Jesus is God, full of grace and truth. This week we remain with John as we now uh, look forward. That's fitting that we've begun in Genesis and now we're in Revelation. As this shows that from beginning to end, God provided light for the world and will continue to in the future. Uh, this curtain is drawn back uh, to reveal some of the future glory that awaits uh, his believers. We see here in Revelation that Christ uh, has come again, Satan has been defeated, and judgment has occurred. And then coming to chapter 21, we read of things made new, and it's this vision, specifically verses 22 through 27, that we want to focus on today. Our, our guiding thoughts this morning are these. Uh, first, that we can walk in the sure light of Christ today, knowing that he has saved, he is saving, and that he will save to the fullest. And secondly, we can know that uh, that which God begins he will complete and perfect to his eternal glory for our everlasting good. So uh, read with us in chapter 21, as we're going to read all of it to get some context, but we want to pay special attention to verses 22 through 27. 
And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed, on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, twelve thousand stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, one hundred and forty-four cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. 
Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you this morning for our time together in your word. And as always, Lord, we just confess that we need your help uh, in our understanding of it. And we would ask that you would um, apply it to our lives, even this morning. So please ready our hearts, soften our hearts, make receptive, make us receptive to all that you have for us. Unstop our ears that we might hear your voice this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Immediately we learn uh, in verse 22 that things are different than the world that John was used to. And so, uh, Wayne, I just want to go back and forth and sharing some observations as we get settled into our passage this morning. Uh, John sees that in this new Jerusalem, there is no need for a temple because God and the Lamb are the temple. In other words, there's no more need for a go-between in order for us to enjoy relationship with God, something that has always been present. John realizes this change in humanity's interactions with God. It's, it's different, it's new. Uh, it harkens back to a time uh, before there was sin in the world. John is witnessing in this vision the most pure and most perfect relationships with God. And like I said, there's no more need for go-betweens or holy and fixed places of worship. Because, you know, in the past, uh, people met God at the tabernacle and at the temple. Now, of course, they sometimes met God in other places, too. But it was the tabernacle where God was known to dwell. And the Israelites took that structure, that portable structure with them as they journeyed through the wilderness uh, and into the promised land. And when they settled the land and eventually established the, the, the nation, uh, they re- the, the, the tabernacle was replaced with the temple. The, the temple became a more permanent place where people would go to meet and worship God. And so in a very real sense, that's how worshiping God looked like in days past. In the present, uh, God meets with us through the indwelling Holy Spirit, the helper, uh, the one which Jesus promised to us to be with us, empower us, encourage us, and help us continue the ministry of Christ. Uh, With the Spirit, we become mobile, uh, no longer bound by tent or building. And even though we no longer need priests uh, or sacrifices in the tabernacle or temple, we still need the Spirit to intercede, communicate, and intervene in our lives in order to have that relationship with God. The time has passed where we have to travel to a specific location, but what we have been promised to now live in, uh, we live in this reality of the Spirit in our hearts wherever we go. And this kind of reminds me of uh, the history of Skype or FaceTime. Uh, It used to be that you only had the opportunity to see someone, one of your friends or family from around the world, uh, at a home computer. Do you guys remember home computers? You guys still have home computers? Um, If you wanted to Skype someone, you had to be at home at your desk, probably plan it out with them about what time you were going to make this happen. but the point is that you had to, it was a fixed location. And this is kind of like that relationship between people, the believers and the temple. You had to be there. Uh, but now things have changed and technology has progressed. And uh, we have on our smartphones the ability to just push a button wherever we are and to see someone and to communicate with them. We no longer have to be pinned down to our home computers. 
uh, or have to coordinate with that person. So if I, for example, wanted to Skype Wayne uh, while I was at the grocery store shopping, I could just call him up and walk around and shop and communicate with him. But I would, un I would uh, wonder why you're Skyping me from the grocery <laughs> store when it would seem like Becky would be the one you'd want to talk yeah. to in that moment. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Um, <laughs> you guys get where? Well, we have had some very funny instances in Costco together that uh, if we had time, we would. We found ourselves cracking up one time. But, uh, what a tease. Yeah. OK. Um, <laughs> you see where I'm going with this and the point that uh, we live in a time where it's certainly better than it was, uh, better than the Israelites had it, where uh, the, today we have the spirit with us. And so we talk about the past and we talk about the present. And in the future, what we see here in Revelation 21 is that God will be with us in the most real and perfect and complete sense imaginable. Meaning he will be with us. There will no longer be this, there will no longer be any sense of distance or separation in our relationship with God. There'll be nothing standing between us and the Lord. Instead, we will be with Him and He will be with us without anything getting in the way. Can you imagine that? Without anything getting in the way, it'll be like what the garden was intended to be from the beginning. In other words, church, there are layers to your relationship with God that you have not yet seen or experienced. Right now we see with the eyes of faith, but a day is coming when faith will become sight, when all that we've longed for, and even more than we've anticipated, um, will be realized in full. And so we, those of us today who await a glorious uh, future, we're in Christ when heaven and earth will meet for good. And our relationship with God will be fully restored to God's heavenly intent. And this, in this place of perfect communion, as John is describing in this passage, the two themes that we've been tracing through this Advent series, these two themes of light and the related theme of life, emerge once again in this passage. And so Andre is going to go deeper into this theme of light. I am. Um, yes, our theme this year has been uh, discovering the light of the world. And while we look back, we've looked back on lights that we're familiar with, we now look forward to a light that no one has fully experienced. This city uh, here in Revelation is new, with parts of it being familiar to cities here on earth and other parts seeming to have taken on a new refurbishment or restoration and they uncover new realities. But before we go much further, I want to remind us that John is in the midst of a vision, a heavenly journey, and I want to try to take us on that same journey uh, with him right now. How many of you have been to California Adventure down in Southern California? I know my Nimi's have, yes. You're, yes, okay, some of you have. And how many of you have been on Soarin' Over California? One of my favorites, because it's not a roller coaster. Um, 
Yeah, it's this, for those of you who haven't, it's this ride where you get in and they kind of, you're pseudo flying. And uh, you get to see California from like a bird's eye view and then they take you uh, really up close and it's like you're walking around some of the famous landmarks of California. And it's not just seeing on this ride, but you even get smells and you get the smell of the, and the spritz of water when you go over the California coast. And uh, when you go over the orange groves, you get this citrusy scent that they spray. And so you just get this full experience on this ride. I think that John is on Soarin' Over New Jerusalem. He's, <laughs> he's getting the, all the sights and views uh, of this new place. And right away, we become aware of some massive changes in the new heaven and earth. We've already talked about the temple being something that John noticed. And then we come to verse uh, 15, which just <laughs> cracks me up a bit. Uh, the detail that John includes is, is great. It's, I think it's like he's kind of surprised that of all the people he would be meeting in this vision, God arranged it that he would meet heaven's city planner. And in verse 15, it says, the one who had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. And we, like, we all get the answer to the question that we've all been wondering, man, are heaven's dimensions the same as our dimensions? <laughs> Big theological question. Answer is yes. Don't worry. All of you craftsmen, and uh, you get to make something that makes sense up in heaven. Um, I think it's actually helpful. Honestly, I think it's, as much as it cracks me up, I think it's great that maybe it just helps us have a rendering of what heaven is actually like and to see what it will be. Um, we also see in this passage a variety of gems and riches that convey the grandeur and luxury of this heavenly city. We come to verse 22, where we already noted the lack of the temple. And then in verse 23, we become privy to some other changes in this new world. And this change something that right now we may take for granted is the source of light. Just imagine yourself in this new world and you're looking all around you and then you notice that the thing giving off light is different. The sun and moon are there, but they no longer serve the world or operate as they do on earth now. And then John is able to see and recognize what this new source of light is. And it's God's glory. And this is our, our main point, is that God will be heaven's light. The light that once signaled the hope of life, that allowed us to see, that guided us in our day, that warmed us, that brought hope, that night was over, gave us beginnings and ends to time as we know it, that light will no longer be needed for those purposes. I think this change speaks to the theme that God will be closer than ever before. Right now, God sustains the world that he created. He sustains the sun and the moon and the stars and all the things that they do for us. But as Wayne mentioned at the beginning, now there's even less distance between us and God in this heavenly city. And it's God's glory that's directly being a light for this new city. Uh, now, have we seen this glory before, and what is this glory? Well, regarding if there's been mention of this glory previously, it reminds me of some other instances in the Bible with God's glory shining. Uh, I think of Moses in the Old Testament, in Exodus, 
and how uh, up on the mount he's meeting with God and he asked that God would reveal himself to him. And more specifically, he asked that God would reveal his glory to him. And God, uh, in his infinite wisdom, knows that if he were to do that, that would kill Moses. Moses couldn't handle the full glory of God. And so instead, he just passes by uh, Moses and just the back of his head is showing, the back of him. And even after that, Moses' face is still so bright, reflecting so much of God's glory that the people can't look at him and he has to veil himself. And then in the New Testament, uh, I think of the Mount of Transfiguration and Jesus upon that mount. And like it says in Matthew 17, 2, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. John, our author of Revelation, was also there at that Mount of Transfiguration and witnessed that. And so I can't help but think as he's in this vision, he has this reference point of, oh my goodness, I got a peek at this glory before from Jesus and now I'm at this city that is fully lighting up or this I'm, I've come across this glory again and it's lighting up an entire city as to what this glory is or, or how to define it I would say that God's glory is the sum of his attributes in full everything he is to the fullest so it's his love in full it's his grace in full, his justice, his power, authority, holiness, purity, and majesty, all to the fullest. And this light that we see in this passage, this glory that radiates and shines God's splendor, is more than just a physical light. It's not just photons and light rays and waves, but it's some sort of literal, physical, spiritual emission of God's splendor. I can only wonder and, and, and be amazed at what that could be like. In these accounts from the Old Testament and the New Testament, God's complete glory, his splendor, couldn't be fully realized, experienced, or seen by humanity. But in the future, this glory of God is something that will be more wholly experienced and felt than ever before. So we see uh, that the light of heaven is God's glory. And this glory does uh, three things. This glory will guide people in, uh, as it says in verse 24. It, it brings people in. This attraction to God's glory and reveling in God's glory is so different than the accounts we've seen in the Bible where God's glory is almost too much for people to handle. It keeps people at a distance. It's just too much. But in this new heaven we see that's no longer the case and God's glory is it's bringing people towards him. And who is being brought into this heavenly city? It's God's people. From every corner of the world, from every tribe and nation, those who believe will be bringing in God's glory. The kings of creation. I think this is referring to those, uh, to humanity those whom God, back at the beginning, set in place to rule over his creation. And even though they failed and we fail, uh, they are now being made perfect in the light of God, bringing glory to him. We also see that this glory is happening 24-7, as it says in verse 25. It's happening all the time, never stopping. The gates are open. Now, we don't really have these cities around us today, but cities back in the day, uh, from what I've researched, had gates. 
And they had gates to uh, keep closed at night to keep intruders out, keep evil and harm from entering their city at night. But now with, in this heavenly city, um, with Satan being defeated, there is no evil. There's no threat of night being something that could bring harm. The gates are just open all the time. There's an invitation, come on into this city. And what are we doing as we enter this city? Verse 26 tells us that we're bringing glory to God. God made us in his image. He made us unique and special, diverse and wonderful, set apart from the rest of creation. And so that glory that God gave out, the honor bestowed unto humanity, is now being brought back to him. And as I was thinking this week, I think that's kind of our role today, right? Our job as Christians and our responsibility, um, our joy is to bring glory to God. It's something that we don't do perfectly. It's difficult when the world is trying to get us to focus on ourselves. We often get distracted from this purpose as believers, as our hearts naturally want to focus on our own desires. And sure, there are moments when we do talk to God. We focus on him and we do bring him glory, but those are temporary. Our attention span for God is lacking. No matter our best efforts, we fall short of always glorifying God. But imagine this new world that is permanently fixated on God's glory, running on God's glory, and bringing more and more glory to him. And so we can learn from the light that we will get to partake in his splendor and experience God's glory in whole new ways. And John is just giving us a taste of it here in this vision. This heavenly light also tells us of the life found in the future. And Wayne is going to go deeper into this life. I do want to talk about, about life and about what life is like in the city of God. And I think to do this uh, means that we need to return to some earlier parts of the chapter and kind of get a feel for what John is seeing here as it relates to life. Uh, in verse 2, for instance, John said that, that this city came down out of heaven from God so that, that heaven and earth are now perfectly united. And as John saw it, the city is prepared by God as a bride for her groom. John saw a bride, and he uses this to describe the city. In fact, as we read the chapter, read through the chapter, we find that the city is the bride, and that the bride represents the church, the universal capital C church that is comprised of men, women, and children uh, from every place and nation throughout human history, who have received God's gift of love by placing personal faith in Jesus Christ, the church. Now, how many of you have ever been a bride? How many brides do we have in the room today? Uh, in our wedding ceremonies, we stand for the bride, right? We honor the bride. We glory in the bride. And we do this because the bride is the main attraction. Uh, it's about her and her dress and her slow but purposeful walk down the aisle 
And because, as most husbands can attest, the wedding day is usually all about what the bride wants anyway. Right? Now, I have never been a bride. <laughs> but I have been a groom awaiting his bride. I know what it's like to count down the days, the hours, the minutes. I've told some of you this story. I still remember standing at the altar uh, with my groomsmen by my side. Uh, the bridesmaids were waking their way down the aisle one by one and taking their positions to, to this side of me. And I was as calm as could be. I was as cool and collected as you can imagine. I even amazed myself at how cool and collected I was. Until the doors of the church closed. And when they opened again, there was my long-awaited bride. Beautiful and radiant. And the sheer wonder of that moment totally overwhelmed me. My, I'm not kidding you. My legs began to shake. My voice began to crack. Uh, uh, water began welling in my eyes with uh, happy tears. Now, why is this? Because I was entering the most important relationship in my life with the most important person in my life. And yet that's just a small picture of what awaits us when we, as the bride of Christ, are brought into glory and into the presence of the Lord. What John glimpsed in those moments was a picture of, of perfect relationship with God, and he tries to articulate the wonder of it all as best he can, though admittedly, uh, human language is limited in trying to describe the indescribable. Now, John also describes this city in greater detail. It is adorned with precious jewels and an abundance of pure gold. We learn of its walls, its gates, its foundations. We discover that this city is a perfect cube. And I totally agree with what Andre was saying. I mean, it is amazing to me that John, John seems amazed that he wants us to know that it, he measured its walls and it's 144 cubits by human measurements, which, oh, by the way, is also an angel's measurement. And so we have this consistency between heaven and earth that John is describing, and yet it is much, much more than we can even imagine. This perfect cube, he says, is identical in length and width and height, and it's significant because the only other place in Scripture where a perfect cube is detailed is what? Anyone? It is the most holy place. It is the Holy of Holies. It is that sacred inner room of the tabernacle and temple in which God himself was known to dwell. But unlike the Holy of Holies, into which only one man could enter just one day a year, and even then only to atone for sin, the heavenly city to come will be readily available to all of God's people at all times. And it is, in other words, it is the holy of holies perfected. 
There, there we will meet with God not to atone for sin, but as those who by Christ's atonement have been redeemed from sin forevermore. Now, at present, we still struggle with sin, don't we? We still live in a sin-ravaged world. But a day is coming, church, when sin will be no more and your faith and your struggle to remain faithful will be perfected. And the communion you share with God now, ebbing and flowing as it does, will be experienced in full at all times in every way. John's vision is a spectacular view of perfect relationship with God to be freely and fully enjoyed as it was in the beginning before the fall. Like a bride, we are being prepared for that incredible experience even today. God is preparing for us and he's preparing us for him. And I love that that the, the, the very fact that we are being prepared implies that we are still in process. You see that? We're not there yet. We haven't arrived yet. We're, we still experience sin and its effects, and this affects our relationship with God. We know we're not as faithful as we want to be. <clears throat> we're not as pure as we want to be. But then... And there, there will not be even a hint of sin. Because the promise of verse 3 that we will dwell with God is, is developed again in verse 4 when it says, He will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. John seems to know that sometimes the best way to describe something is by describing what it's not. Earlier, he said that the sea was no more. And to the ancients and the ancient Hebrews in particular, the sea, when the sea was in turmoil, when it was churning, that was just a picture of danger and chaos and evil. But when God's redemptive work is consummated, there will be no more danger or despair. Today, Today, don't we? We have tears. We have death. We have mourning and crying and pain. But imagine with me a life in which there is no sorrow or even the hint of sadness. No more, <clears throat> no more random shootings. No more terrorist attacks. No more crime of any sort. No more fiscal cliffs. No more unemployment, no more homelessness, no more racism, no more sickness, no more disease, no more tumors, no more physical disabilities or mental handicaps, no more chronic pain, no more addictions, no more loss of loved ones, no more broken or strained relationships, no more death. No more bad news. And catch this, no more threat of these things because sometimes even the threat of them can be as bad as the things themselves. No more sin 
and none of sin's effects and no more temptation to sin. At the consummation of all things, all shall be whole, all shall be holy, and therefore every aspect of life shall be happy in the most meaningful sense of that word. God himself, we're told, will tend to us and he will tenderly wipe every tear from our eyes and nothing will make us even the slightest bit sad or fearful. Can you imagine? Creation will be perfectly restored and at last our worship of God will be completely untainted. And isn't that what John writes in verse 27 in our passage this morning? It says, Nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. Here, John is emphasizing the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the absolute purity of God. And he's saying that those who populate God's heavenly city with him are completely clean and whole completely holy, perfectly righteous, absolutely pure. Think through this with me. Have you ever thought about what it would be like to be really, really, I mean really clean? Imagine living in a resurrection body that is entirely free from sin's curse. Imagine being with God without feeling a need to hide any shame whatsoever. Imagine living with each other and with other creatures in perfect harmony, free from fear and suspicion. Imagine being in a place where we are not only free from sin's penalty and sin's power, but also free from sin's presence as well. That's what John is saying here. But he makes very clear that this applies only to those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Jesus is the Lamb. From the very beginning of his earthly ministry, it was said of Jesus that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And near the end of his ministry, he went willingly to the cross as a sacrificial lamb, bearing our sins in our place so that we might be redeemed from sin and saved to God. But here, we find that not all are saved. Contrary to common thought, John says that not all roads lead to heaven. Not all are present in the city of God. Only those who are written 
in the book of life will be there in that place with God. Only those who trust in Christ as Lord, because as the scripture promises elsewhere, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And for the person who trusts Christ in this way, eternity to come will be the glorious uniting of heaven and earth. How amazing it will be to enjoy God, to enjoy newness of life with God and newness of life with God together when God's redemptive plan that he's been working to perfection all along is finally perfected. And so... We don't know where you stand in your relation to God this morning. Many of you, we hope and we presume, you do have a very real, you enjoy a very real and meaningful and personal relationship with Him, but, but we realize that maybe some don't, and so we want to be sensitive to that. We are sensitive to that, and so we want to end with, with two very brief points of application that we think apply to all of us in the room. I think the first thing we see from our passage is the exhortation to receive this gift of life. From John's vision, there's just a clear call to trust in the Lord, our King and Maker. We are called to believe, to trust who He is, to obey Him, and to abide in Him. He says in verse 6, to those who are thirsty, He will give them the water of life without payment. In other words, Jesus offers you new life. Take Jesus up on this offer. Admit your need. Receive the gift of life. And make sure that your name is in the book of life. And then the second thing that we, we thought about this week is, is let the light of future grace inform your life now. I think for those of us who are already in Christ and whose names are written in the book, it's important we know that having your name in the book of life should affect your life now. It should change how you live, how you view the world, how you view situations and circumstances that come your way. The future isn't about the future only. It's also about your present experience. Thank and praise God for his immense grace and, and mercy and his love. Be appreciative. Be hopeful. Be agents of hope in the world. Scripture says in 1 Peter 1, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, let these things guide your path now. Allow the light of future grace to inform your present experience. And so in conclusion, the people of old look forward uh, to this first advent while we await the second. We look back upon Christ's birth and rejoice in what it means, and we look forward to his second coming too. <coughs> because he has saved, 
he is saving and he will save to the fullest. That which God has begun, he will perfect to his glory and for our eternal good. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for our time this morning in your word. I just want to pray over the congregation now. I want to thank you for those who are seated here whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and I pray that you would impress that reality upon them even today in a way that would affect and change and motivate their lives. Lord, whatever circumstances they're facing today, I think that this reality of future grace, this great and glorious hope we have, they would just break through with new light from heaven into each heart, each circumstance, each situation. And then, Lord, we're just mindful that there may be some in this room who are unsure if their name is in that book. And as Andre reminded us, I pray that you would impress upon them the need to take Jesus up on his offer, to admit their spiritual emptiness, to admit their need of a Savior, that, that without Christ they remain in their sins. Would you bring grace to them even now and give them the faith to confess Jesus as Lord? We ask it in his name for his glory, and for the good of your people everywhere. Amen.